Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. For just the third time in the history of this republic, the Senate is set to hear the impeachment case against an American president. Chief Justice of the United States John Roberts administered the oath to Senator Jurors. Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws, so help you God. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he'll consider the case of the House but isn't inclined to invite in witnesses. Yet new evidence and allegations keep surfacing. An indicted associate of Trump's personal attorney, Lev Parnas, says he was waist-deep in the Ukraine scheme and that the president's motivation was his personal political gain. It was strictly for him. But again, I thought he was the our leader. He's the chief. He's the president. And it was all about 2020 to make sure he had another four years. And the thermostat was turned way up this week in the Democratic presidential primary. A hot mic after a debate captured the tension between Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren over whether Sanders had privately told her a woman couldn't win the election. I think you called me a liar on national TV. Let's not do it right now. You want to have that discussion, we'll have that discussion. You called me a liar. You told me. All right, let's not do it now. I don't want to get nailed. I just want to say hi, Bernie. Yeah, good. Join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. With us from the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Kimberly Atkins. She's WBUR's senior news correspondent. Kimberly, thanks for joining us today. Hi, David. Also here with us from Washington, Darlene Superville. She covers the White House for the Associated Press. Darlene, welcome back to On Point. Hi, David. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point News analyst Jack Beatty joins us. Hello, Jack. Hello, David, Kim, and Darlene. Well, guys, it strikes me today that what we're seeing is kind of two things running in parallel, right? You're having the solemnity and the, uh, the, the ceremony of the moment, as, as sobering as it is when you take a step back, uh, as we heard from uh, the Chief Justice. And we're also having a lot of things unfold in public, not inside the august chambers and corridors of the Capitol building, but in Washington and our TV screens and everywhere around us that affect what it is the senators will be uh, considering in the in the weeks to come. First, I guess let's take the ceremony of it. Let's uh, talk uh, a little or let our listeners hear a little bit about uh, – what some of our leaders were saying. House uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi spoke Wednesday at the ceremony where the House's articles of impeachment were signed before being transmitted to the Senate. So sad, so tragic for our country uh, that the actions taken by the president to undermine our national security, to violate his oath of office, and to jeopardize the security of our elections, the integrity of our elections, has taken us to this place. So today, we will make history. Now, earlier in the day, Pelosi had named impeachment managers as her senior House members who will present the case to the Senate. She said then that chances of additional witnesses and documents in the trial are improved because she withheld the articles of impeachment as new information surfaced. Uh, Darlene Superville, um, help our uh, sketch out for our listeners here. Uh, before we get to some of the new revelations the last couple of days, what the rules of the road are as we understand them in the Senate, and how are the folks you cover in the White House uh, accommodating, adjusting, strategizing for that? Well, the big thing to know about what's happening in the Senate is uh, yesterday we saw on TV uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was walked over to the Senate chamber. He took his oath of office. He's going to be presiding over the impeachment trial. He then administered the same oath uh, to senators where they uh, swore to do impartial justice as they sit in the coming weeks listening to uh, evidence in the, in the trial. And then they all uh, had to sign what's called the oath book. And in groups of four, in alphabetical order, they walked up to the well of the Senate, and you could watch them on TV, sign, sign their names in the oath book. Um, there are some procedural things that have to take place in the next couple of days, briefs 
both sides have to file briefs. But the the big action will come on Tuesday, which is when the Senate trial will open in earnest at 1 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon. Um, Kimberly, you're you're a lawyer as well as uh, an experienced reporter. As you've been reporting on this and as you've been watching uh, this play out, uh, Darlene just mentioned the oath book that is signed, and it's uh, not to join Cub Scouts or Girl Scouts, right? It's uh, you know a, a constitutional swearing that you're going to do this duty. Uh, before we even get to the question of some of the things that we've talking about this week and some of the political implications that will affect a number of the senators, no doubt on both sides. It does seem to me as though these jurors who have sworn to look at these things with open minds have at least a majority, clear majority of them have made clear exactly how they're going to vote, have made clear exactly how they feel about the case of the House. How do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, I don't think it's as difficult to reconcile uh, as it may seem. I think we've heard a lot of people um, compare the impeachment trial process to a judicial trial process. And, you know, when people think about that, when they think about when they're called to be jurors, that they have to be impartial. If there is any kind of conflict, they they probably won't even be seated on a jury, right? Well, an impeachment is not a trial uh, in that sense. It's not a judicial trial. It's a a political uh, exercise. It was designed as such by the framers. And so I don't think there was a thought that uh, these 100 senators will come in as if their you know, minds had been erased of everything that had happened in the past. And if they uh, leave their uh, views at the door, they're elected officials. So I think some sort of uh, idea about how they might vote is not disqualifying here. I think do impartial justice means listen to the evidence that is presented, uh, seek evidence, of, you know, making motions if you want to, to hear witnesses or get additional documents. And then based on that, based on what's before you, if you are convinced that this rise rises to a crime uh, and misdemeanor, uh, that warrants being removed from from office, vote as such. Jack Beatty, uh, one of the uh, points that you've heard from the president's defenders is that there's no law that w- was broken here, no crime committed. And though, uh, as uh, Kimberly suggested, the kinds of high crimes and misdemeanors are, don't require actual crimes and it's not specified as such, that has been a talking point. Uh, as one of our listeners points out, uh, uh, Jacob Evans points out online, you know, the GAO just get rendered an opinion that the president did break the law. The OMB did break the law and withholding uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in military aid, defensive military aid to the Ukrainians, seemingly on the basis of asking uh, for a favor of return, the announcement of an investigation of uh, former Vice President uh, Joe Biden. Uh, the GAO is uh, the Government Accountability Office, and that's sort of an independent agency within the legislative branch of government. But it did found a law was, bro- was broken, although that doesn't constitute an indictment or a conviction. Does that change in any way the tenor of debate or our understanding of some of the issues in front of us? Well, I think it. I mean, yeah, I think it puts pressure on Republican senators who are susceptible to it. There are a handful of them who are in tight. Uh, re-election uh, contests, and they have to at least maintain the appearance of uh, entertaining uh, the possibility of witnesses, of being open to new evidence such as this. Uh, on the other hand, there, <laughs> Cory Gardner this week, he was asked, uh, well, is it wrong for a president to you know, ask a foreign government to help him uh, in an election, to give dirt on his opponent for an election. And he just was the umpteenth Republican senator who simply wouldn't join with the question, wouldn't answer it. And and there's a – so there's a – there's pressure on them. But on the other side, you get Kevin McCarthy when he was the House Minority Leader, when he was told about the GAO report, he, he said – oh, he dismissed it in a phrase. He said, oh, that's nothing. That's just mere piffle uh, – regulations, blah, blah, doesn't seem to bother him. Uh, but, but then again, he's from a, cell, a safe district and, and no danger. So there'll be different responses to this new evidence, but it will put Republican senators under both intellectual and moral pressure. 
Uh, Cory Gardner, obviously a Republican senator from uh, Colorado, up for re-election. A fair point there. I want to play a clip of the president. He was asked in the overall office yesterday about reports that his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, wrote a letter for Ukraine Prime Minister for the Ukraine Prime Minister Zelensky on behalf of Trump, requesting a meeting before his inauguration. President Trump denied he knew about the letter, but defended Giuliani. It was very important to Rudy that I be a great president, and that's okay with me. It was very important to a lot of people because our country was going to hell, and now our country's on a path that we haven't seen in decades and decades. We've never done better. Uh, Zelensky, forgive me, the president of Ukraine. Dar- Darlene Superville, how confident, how, uh, how uh, jaunty, how uh, concerned is the White House at this point as it enters this trial phase uh, of the impeachment crisis? Well, if the White House is concerned at all, they aren't showing it. Uh, You hear uh, those close to the president basically dismissing some of the new revelations that have come out. We mentioned Lev Parnas and and all the information that he's been talking about in TV interviews over the past couple of days, the existence of a letter that uh, Giuliani wrote to the president of Ukraine. You, You heard the president there saying that he knew nothing about it. He also says that he doesn't know Lev Parnas, uh, even though there are multiple uh, photographs with the two of them in the same frame. Um, and this is from the top down. You, ha- you, you hear this from the president. You hear the same thing from the White House press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, and uh, others who work in the press office, uh, Kellyanne Conway. Um, they, are, they, they say the president, they insist the president did nothing wrong and that he doesn't deserve to be impeached. He did not deserve to be impeached, and therefore he should not be removed from office. Um, it was interesting. You mentioned Kellyanne Conway sort of tap dancing around uh, her knowledge and other members of the administration's knowledge of Lev Parnas. You referred to Parnas. Uh, he is, of course, the associate of Rudy Giuliani, who has come out mm-hmm. this week saying he's been active uh, in Ukraine on the president's behalf. We're going to be talking about him uh, after a short break. We'll be talking about the impeachment proceedings against President Trump's, uh, what it will mean for the president, what it will mean for senators on both parties. We want our guests to stick around and we want you folks to stick around. We'll be taking calls right after the short break uh, and we'll then be hearing a little bit more about the developments of the week. I'm David Folkenflick and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balanced scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures, there are other things that are going to affect your performance. And maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while. And Thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 
This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. We're talking about the U.S. Senate impeachment trial against President Trump, the legal and political perils for the president, also for his jurors, which is to say the members of the U.S. Senate. Plus, we'll be talking about the latest details we're learning from associate of his personal attorney about events in Ukraine. And a bit later on, we'll talk about phase one of the new trade deal with China and what it might mean for you. Follow us on the Twitters and the Facebook at On Point Radio. We have a superstar and super sharp panel of guests with me this hour. Darlene Superville from the Associated Press, Kimberly Atkins from WBUR's uh, in Washington, and our own On Point News analyst, uh, Jack Beatty. I want to take – we've got a number of calls now. I want to take a couple of them. Uh, let's start uh, with a call from Jim in Newtown, Connecticut. Uh, Way in here. What, what do you think about what you're seeing there? Well, very briefly, I – I am greatly encouraged to see the impeachment process start to unfold, the majesty of the process, if you will, and the the seeming seriousness with which some of these senators at least are going to take this. Uh, These these were – these are high crimes uh, used uh, our tax money, which is really what irritates me the most, that our tax money – was used as a cudgel for, apparently, for the president's personal gain. And I invite, uh, I wonder if your guests would have anything to say about the possibility that uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Roberts being there, to what extent could the Senate uh, choose to make him more and more the arbiter as he has more, the most objective viewpoint and could, uh, could by simply a, a majority vote, be given the power to set the procedural rules. And I think that would be a welcome thing. And I think that the cult of Trumpism, the sway of this cult is we will now see it disintegrate in the course of this impeachment. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for listening and thanks for calling in, Jim. We'll talk a little bit about uh, Lev Parnas in a couple of minutes, an associate of the president's personal attorney who used the same phrase, a cult-like aura or a culture around the president. But Kim Atkins, be my lawyer for a moment. Uh, You know, talk to me about the Chief Justice, the role he could play, it has been pointed out uh, that were the Senate to essentially decide to give him the authority, he could have the rules or that he could break in certain moments uh, Senate ties if there was a tangle up over how to proceed, particularly I think people are thinking in light of would there be witnesses? Could there be more evidence? That sort of uh, question coming along. Yeah, well, the chief justice, uh, don't expect him to jump in and act as some sort of, uh, uh, you know, hero, depending on what side uh, you're pulling for in the impeachment. He is somebody who is known to uh, really stick to process. He does not like to himself be politicized. Uh, he's very careful when it comes to the image of the Supreme Court, and I'm sure he will be just as careful when it comes to uh, this proceeding as not being seen to be putting his thumb on uh, the scale as the senators decide what to do. It will be up to him to rule on motions, including a motion uh, to uh, ask for particular witnesses or documents to be presented. And yes, he could uh, be the tiebreaker if there is a 50-50 tie on a motion. I think the chances of that are so small um, that I don't expect that to happen. But if he rules, on a motion for something, for example, for a witness, the Senate also has the ability to overrule uh, his decision by a simple majority vote. So I don't think this is the case. I, I think the chances are very low that the senators all say, you know what, we'll just listen to what the chief justice says. They all clearly, as they've uh, telegraphed, have their own views about things like witnesses. Uh, and they're split on party lines with the exception of a handful of senators who may allow some witnesses at some point in the trial and maybe not. Um, But I don't think that the chief justice will be given free reign in this. Uh, News breaking today, even as we speak, that uh, it's clear that uh, the president is thinking hard about who he wants to represent him. He has added uh, Ken Starr, famously the independent counsel in the Clinton impeachment process. Uh, Robert Ray, another uh, impeachment counsel who kind of closed out the Whitewater investigation. Uh, and Alan Dershowitz, the uh, emeritus Harvard law professor who's shown up uh, repeatedly as a defender of the president and his authority uh, as the commander in chief. Uh, he's adding them as sort of his representatives as his uh, legal team for the Senate trial. Uh, Notably, uh, or not incidentally, all uh, common figures on the Fox News uh, channel, uh, one of uh, the president's main conduits of information. Uh, 
Jack Beatty, I wanted to play a clip from Lev Parnas. He's sort of uh, dominated the airwaves for the last uh, 48 hours or so. He's an associate of President Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. He also, it's important to note, is under federal indictment for his involvement in efforts to pressure the president of Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. And that's the same pressure that led to President Trump's impeachment or helped to lead to it. Parnas is now speaking out about his motivations. He implicated the president directly in all of the plans he executed. Here he spoke with CNN's Anderson Cooper. It was strictly for him. But again, I thought he was the our leader. He's the chief. He's the president. And it was all about 2020 to make sure he had another four years. And I didn't. And you, but that's the, how you personally viewed it, that this is about 2020 to help him get the next four years. That was the way everybody viewed it. I mean, there was that was the most important thing is for him to stay on for another four years and keep the fight going. I mean, there was no other reason for doing it. Uh, Jack Beatty, some of the things that uh, Parnas said were backed up. He provided a lot of uh, text between himself and various actors in this drama, uh, including Giuliani. He produced that letter uh, that Giuliani wrote to the president of Ukraine, basically introducing himself as the president's personal lawyer who needed some of uh, the uh, uh, the Ukrainian president's time. Uh, and there's some things he didn't uh, substantiate as far as I can tell. What did you make of the – uh, the allegations, the charges, and the information that he put into public view in, in recent days. Well, it can't surprise anybody who's been following the te- who followed the testimony uh, in the in the House hearings. It just it, it essentially echoes and brings closer to the president the the charge, the allegations there made by witness after witness that there was what the <laughs> what the transcript as the president said reveals a pressure campaign on ukraine to uh to help uh to come out with dirt on biden and interestingly one of the uh, one of the documents on uh, ritz carlton stationery i guess at the in vienna it shows parnas writing that uh, pressure zelensky the Ukrainian president to announce <laughs> an investigation of Hunter Biden, not to to investigate Hunter Biden. That's a that's that's corruption. You want to look into whether there's been corruption to announce an investigation. That's what the president wanted. Uh, simply the appearance of looking into uh, uh, Biden, which would allow the president to demagogue that issue uh, to death. Uh, so uh, he does have, as you say, some some uh, objective uh, support for his some of his contentions. Others, such as, you know, the attorney general Barr was in the loop. He knew everything that was going on and so on. Well, we that awaits, I think, some kind of proof. He made allegations about Mike Pence as well. And Republicans rightly are saying, wait a minute, this man is an indicted, uh, you know, he's, an, he's, he's under indictment. You can't take what he says, uh, and he has motives for saying what he says, and so you can't take any of this on face value and need to be very skeptical. Let's play a little clip of uh, get at some of what you were talking about there, Jack. In an interview with MSNBC's Rachel Maddow Wednesday, Parnas claimed that Vice President Pence's attendance at Ukrainian President Zelensky's inauguration was conditioned on Ukraine announcing an investigation in Joe Biden. Parnas told Maddow the Trump team didn't care, as you say, about an actual investigation, just the appearance of one. President Trump is supposed to go. He decides not to go. Vice President Pence will go instead. He sends him instead, yeah. And uh, basically, he was supposed to go there and get it straightened out that (laughs) Zelensky was supposed to make another announcement. And that didn't happen. And that's when Bolton, Secretary Bolton, went over there. And I think he has a lot to say. Darlene Superville, he's uh, implicated Vice President Pence. Obviously, if they were able to get Pence in front of the Senate, he might have things to say. It's unlikely to happen. John Bolton has said, yeah, I'll go if the Senate asks me to come. So far, that certainly hasn't happened. Mike Pompeo has been enormously quiet. Uh, one of the things that's surprising that about the Secretary of State's silence is that uh, former uh, Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch uh, was said, according to Parnas and according to some text messages uh, from one of Parnas's guys over in, uh, in in Ukraine, an American, a former service member, but who was there, was texting him saying he had Yovanovitch under uh, surveillance uh, while she was uh, serving as ambassador and that they were going to definitely be part of Parnas's efforts to pressure, uh, giving him information about her as uh, Parnas was trying to pressure the Ukrainians to get rid of her. And the monitoring seemed to have sort of an ominous overtone. Now, Parnas has said he doesn't didn't take seriously the idea of any threat to her. Uh, 
uh, and uh, certainly that's been dismissed by allies of the president. But it does seem sort of amazing that you have somebody who was a sitting U.S. ambassador being followed by Americans who were not operating in any official government capacity uh, but with a desire to pressure her out of government. Uh, what do we make of the secretary's silence and how tenable is that? That's a good question. The The silence by Secretary of State Pompeo has just been mystifying all across Washington. Um, he he never really stood up for Ambassador Yovanovitch uh, last year when she was going through uh, what she was going through in the run-up to her eventual dismissal. And that uh, bothered a lot of the career diplomats at the State Department that the head of department, the head of the department would not stand up and vouch for the character and integrity of this this career ambassador. Uh, in her testimony uh, before, during the impeachment inquiry, she did speak to some of this um, feeling that she had that, that she was being threatened and uh, just fearful and intimidated throughout this whole process. And I think some of what we heard from Lev Parnas uh, with respect to this issue uh, shed some new light on that. I don't know how long uh, Secretary Pompeo will be able to maintain his silence on this. The government in Ukraine has opened an investigation into the alleged uh, surveillance of of Ms. Yovanovitch uh, because it could potentially have broken Ukrainian laws as well as international laws. Uh, So it's, it's kind of a wait and see, I think, at this point. I want to take a couple of quick calls now from Madison, Wisconsin. Matt, thank you for listening. Uh, tell us about your thoughts about uh, the impeachment process that's playing out in Capitol Hill. Well, I'm a Republican, so here's how I view this inquiry. One, I believe the president is allowed to look back at Joe Biden and his son's dealings in Ukraine, which could potentially have been illegal, which is the way I think most Republicans are looking at this saying that the president legitimately should have been able to say, we want you to take a look at potential illegalities that were going on and and with your previous administration to make sure you're above board. So the holding of money back, which the Ukrainians didn't know about, to me would seem that he was doing his due diligence, saying we need to find out what's going on here. And as far as the ambassador and everybody else that is upset they serve at the pleasure of the president. If he doesn't want to keep employing them, they're done. And he can do that whether he decides this ambassador is not doing what my administration and my policy as I see it for the future of the United States. So therefore, we're going to dismiss them. And being able to potentially say, is she doing what we're asking her to do? Because she's been here through multiple administrations. Mm -hmm. I don't think is out of line. Can I ask you a quick question, very quick question, Matt? Uh, one of your senators, uh, Ron Johnson, is a Republican from Wisconsin, not up for re- election this year. But say he were to invite in more uh, witnesses, say he were to have qualms about which way he were to vote on that. Would that affect your willingness to support him as a Republican? That is, is, is your support as a Republican conditional on the support that, uh, that senators might have for the president? So here's how I see a witness. If they have firsthand direct information, I'm fine with it. If it's all hearsay and, hey, I got fired from my job and I think it was for this reason, or, hey, I heard this from somebody else and so I don't like it because something happened to me because it's thirdhand, then I would have a very big problem with it. I want to see the the same rules that would apply in a court of law for a witness apply to people that are going to testify in front of the Senate. Thank you so much for that, Matt. Quickly, we're going to take one more call from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Brendan, thanks for listening. Yeah, regarding the witnesses, Susan Collins is a fraud. She does this all the time. She always pretends she's going to do the right thing, but then she just ends up towing the party line. And most importantly, can I get your takes on uh, this weekend's football games? (laughs) Well, uh, (coughs) forgive me. I think uh, we're going to allow the jury to remain out on that one just for the sake of time. But thank you for that, Brendan. On Susan Collins, I want to go to one of her colleagues, uh, a clip from Arizona Senator Martha McSally. She was a a Republican appointed to uh, serve out the full term of the late Senator John McCain. She called CNN reporter Manju uh, Manu Raju, a liberal hack, for asking her whether she would vote to include additional witnesses in the Senate impeachment trial. But on Fox News last night, McSally didn't seem any more comfortable answering the question from a conservative who's a supporter of the president, and that's host Laura Ingram. 
What sure. about Manu Raju's question? Do you want witnesses? Sure. I want a fair trial. Okay, you're not going to get to play the game with no, no, no. you. You can call me a no. conservative Look, hack, I, but do you want witnesses? Yes or no? Why aren't you telling us? Because we're going to vote on, on on Tuesday to start the trial and let them present the. Uh, well, how are you going to vote on the motion for more wit for witnesses? We're going to get to that. I mean, I'm not going to tell everybody what all my votes are going to be, but obviously, my point. Pretty easy question, don't you think, Senator? I think we're going to proceed forward at that point, and I really. But you're not going to vote with Romney and the others, all down. are you? You're going to you're going to you're going to vote. I think we'll proceed to a final vote. Uh, I hope with a strong unity after phase one is complete. Okay. Uh, Jack Beatty, uh, it seems to me as though there are a number of senators uh, in the Republican Party in particular who are vulnerable at this moment and have to be perceived as being fair in, in a number of states. You think of Tom Tillis in North Carolina. You mentioned Cory Gardner earlier, uh, Martha McSally. This and Susan Collins, which our caller brought up with some sort of uh, tart, tart language there. Uh, and yet there are going to be some Democrats too. You think of cinema uh, in Arizona. That's a real swing state. You think of Joe Manchin, a conservative state of West Virginia. H how is this going to affect what senators are willing to do? Uh, I think uh, absolutely. I mean there, there is – you know, that is the calculation politicians live by. Will I be – will I – can I stand to be reelected? Will this hurt me? And um, I think we heard from Matt uh, a very sort of, you know, informed and intelligent statement of Republican fealty to the president and the feeling they have, Republicans, that the president is uh, being uh, impeached for um, things that presidents just do. Uh, you know, they, they can fire ambassadors. They can mm -hmm. look into corruption. They can th – that seems to be accepted and I get and, – and, and the president has made it difficult for his, his, his followers in the Senate to, to accommodate nuance. He's, he's, the president says, my perfect phone call. With, right. You know, in the, in the Clinton impeachment, Bill Clinton said I did wrong. Right. No Clinton was, Clinton was, was – his defense was I'm far from perfect man. All right. Thanks yes. for that, Jack. We wanted to also acknowledge to listeners uh, uh, developments this week. Eleven U.S. troops, it turned out, were injured in that Iranian missile attack. Despite the Pentagon's initial statements, there were no casualties. Uh, we're also going to uh, look ahead to some of the uh, trade developments. And we'll talk about how tensions between Senator Sanders and Warren bubbled into plain view over questions of electability and of sexism. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, the Russian prime minister and Russian government resigned en masse this week. Critics have speculated about the shift that extends Putin's control beyond the presidency. The flu vaccine administered this year in the U.S. doesn't quite match the strain of the flu infecting most people across the country. Health officials say it's too early to tell how bad this flu season will be, but 27 children have already died this, this season from it. And a sign-stealing scandal rocked Major League Baseball. The Houston Astros manager and general manager were fired this week for their roles in a cheating scheme during the World Series winning season in 2017 that continued in 2018. Two other managers were also fired. That's a story we're also tracking here at On Point. You can follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. Back with us, a smart panel of guests guiding through this busy week in the news. We have Kimberly Atkins from WBUR, Darlene Superville from the Associated Press, and our own On Point news analyst, Jack Beatty. Darlene Superville, let's touch on a, a moment on this new uh, trade deal. It's being touted by the president and his allies as sort of a counterpoint to impeachment, saying, look at the important and weighty things that we're doing while you people are wasting your time 
up on Capitol Hill. What, have, what has been announced and what are the merits of this, uh, of this uh, accord? Well, there are two trade deals that the president uh, can now talk about. There was the China trade deal that he signed on Wednesday, the initial phase or phase one of what he had hoped would be a much bigger, more comprehensive trade deal with China that would, in his mind, bring China to its knees. And then yesterday in the Senate, you had uh, the Senate pass a, sort of a rewrite of what we know as NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which the president has renamed the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. Um, he talks about both of those in very outsized terms, how good it, they both will be for American workers and, and especially American farmers who suffered a great deal under the trade war that President Trump initiated with China about a year and a half, two years ago, and the tariff war that went on between both of those countries. Uh, the USMCA deal took a year. It was passed. It was agreed to a year ago between the three countries. And then it kind of sat around Congress for a while. Democrats worked on it. Um, worked with the trade representative union groups to, to get it to a place where their members could vote on it, stronger enforcement, uh, uh, provisions having to do with prescription drugs and pricing, and so on. And um, and so that cleared uh, the Senate yesterday. And, uh, you know, the president and the people around him say these are both good for the U.S., uh, good for the economy. They'll create lots of jobs. Um, and all those things, of course, remain to be seen. Darlene, call me crazy, but it feels as though, uh, you know, NAFTA was uh, by the accounts of some, including people from the opposing party. Elizabeth Warren, who wants to replace the president, voted for the updated deal that the president's uh, administration got through. Uh, it feels as though it's an update. With the Chinese, it feels as though the president is kind of um, – Back where he started, uh, in a sense, or, or you know, in this in, in the same position that the George W. Bush and Obama administrations found themselves with, just that ultimately, even if you see a competitor and a, something of a threat in China, you have to find ways to do business with them. A am I completely right. wrong here? No, I don't think so. The the NAFTA USMCA that clearly was an update. There was some tinkering and updating of provisions. NAFTA was passed in 1994, so it was 20, 25, 26 years old and probably was uh, due for some sort of updating and tinkering around the edges. Uh, in the case of China, you know, one thing you'll hear from the White House is that the United States has never had any kind of agreement like this with China. Um, and China has been a longtime rival of the United States. Uh, we've been critical of their trade practices for a long time, but no one has ever seemed to be able to bring the Chinese to the table and have these negotiations and, and try to pressure China to, to change its trading practices towards the U.S. There are those that argue, of course, that what the president signed on Wednesday doesn't really do that. And there's going to be a second phase of negotiations with China, which the president calls phase two, that is supposed to get into some more of the thornier issues around, surrounding China and its um, trade practices and alleged theft of intellectual property from U.S. manufacturers and corporations and things of that sort that uh, were not in the phase one agreement because these negotiations had been going on and on and on and the U.S. was putting on tariffs, then China was countering with more tariffs, and it was getting kind of mutually destructive in a sense. And mm -hmm. so they've done phase one, pushed the other things off the table, and now they'll go back and try to try to work on those other issues, which the president has said he doesn't see a deal, a phase two deal happening before the election. Um, my uh, NPR colleague, uh, Emily Fung, the uh, Beijing correspondent there, said that in looking at that first deal that was signed, you know, the Chinese, for example, promised to buy an extra $200 billion of American exports, but kind of conditional on if the products were themselves priced highly competitively and if it was meeting their needs. And there was a lot of hedging going on there. It, will, it appears to remain to be seen whether or not it leads that way. One of the things that you're kind of indicating, Darlene, it seems to me, is also these were things that were reached uh, 
after the administration managed to sort of uh, leverage things to a place of crisis. And it is a sort of a mode where it's sort of crisis and return as in, if you think about Iran, the president now saying after that heightened tensions, uh, confrontation, possibly leading to conflict, the president now says he's willing to negotiate uh, with the Iranians again. I want to turn now to the domestic arena, turn to the uh, Kimberly Atkins, to the uh, debates that played out uh, this week among Democrats, what happened on stage, as well as in a moment, what happened uh, afterward. Tell us what you saw, Kimberly, in that um, narrowed Democratic field. I believe six uh, remaining folks making the debate stage uh, as we are just a couple of weeks from those first caucuses in Iowa. Uh, who seems to have steadied themselves and, and how are you seeing uh, the the kind of arguments that the candidates are making uh, be clarified uh, as they enter this home stretch? Well, this debate uh, is the one, the last one. It was the last one before the Iowa caucuses. And overall, on during the debate, before uh, the handshaking took place, it seemed that the strategy was do no harm among all of these candidates. They're trying to solidify the support that they have and not turn anybody off. Because remember, in Iowa, these are caucuses. So second choices matter. Sometimes third choices matter. Uh, if if a, can, if a, a voter's first choice gets knocked out, then you go to the second choice. And a lot of people in Iowa haven't made up their minds. They will show up at their caucus sites, uh, you know, still open-minded. So it was very light on attacks. You don't see the sharp, you didn't see the sharp jabs that you've seen in earlier debates. Uh, And that's a big reason why the candidates are being careful and just making their cases to the voters themselves. That was, of course, until the end of the debate when uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren was caught on a hot mic uh, saying to Bernie Sanders after their discussion about whether or not Bernie Sanders mentioned in a in a private conversation that he believed a woman couldn't win, uh, Elizabeth Warren accused him of being a liar. And Bernie Sanders first said he didn't want to talk about it then, but added that he thinks that she called him a liar. Uh, and of course, that once that tape was found, uh, that sort of exploded uh, this sort of internal feud that is happening between the two of them that their their campaigns had spent a great deal of time trying to tamp down to us reporters before heading in because, again, it doesn't help them heading into Iowa if it appears that these two progressive candidates uh, who could appeal to multiple voters uh, are fighting. Uh, one of our listeners uh, uh, writes in, Karen Worth, uh, posts on Twitter, has anyone else decided they'd have a hard time voting for Elizabeth Warren now? The drama seemingly was orchestrated by Warren and by CNN, sad and shameful and shows a meanness on Warren's part. Jack Beatty, what do you make of both the tension between the two and of the underlying question uh, – you know, in a sense, it's something I've heard from feminists, in fact, uh, as I've talked to various kinds of people over the course of uh, this Democratic uh, primary, which is, you know, would it be tougher in current America uh, for a woman to be elected as president? Is that a valid concern or is it just sexist to raise that as a question? Uh, unfortunately, it is a valid concern. Uh, Michelle Cottle in The New York Times this week uh, does a very – uh, good job of pulling together research on this question in an in a, uh, editorial call. Are we ready to elect a woman president? And the answer seems to be perhaps. Uh, she points to a study of um, Yale researchers. They they asked that they they asked people's attitude. Here's a male senator. Uh, he's ambitious. What do you think about that? Great. Here's a woman senator. She's ambitious. What do you think about that? Well, quote that raised. Exp- Feelings of moral outrage, contempt, anger, and disgust for being ambitious. She points to a poll conducted uh, by uh, Lean In in September that found that 53% of voters were extremely or very ready for a woman president, but only 16% thought that most Americans felt the same way. And they, she quotes from Uh, Rachel Thomas, the executive of Lean In, which is a women's research group, saying, if voters don't think that America is ready, they tend to be less likely to vote for a woman themselves. Essentially, you know, underlying the the, the whole 
underlying the whole question. And then uh, Cottle points out, she says, Sanders' alleged remarks struck a nerve. Women candidates and their supporters aren't simply outraged that he could be so wrong. They're worried he might be right. Darlene Superville, let me quickly ask you two questions about that. One is that in keeping with what you sense as you do reporting uh, uh, in anticipation of uh, this campaign? I'm sorry? I was just saying, is that in keeping with uh, what you're hearing from whether it's strategists or whether it's voters uh, as you anticipate you know, the, the, the lead up to this uh, general election? Uh, yes, but one of the things that came up after the Warren-Sanders uh, clash, post-debate clash on Wednesday night was the, the reminder that Hillary Clinton got – Three million or so more votes than and then Donald mm-hmm. Trump in 2016. So, what is the hang-up in the United States of America over uh, electing a woman president when so many other countries around the world have already gone there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is that they've already shown the majority of Americans that they're happy to vote for a woman. It's just it didn't work out in terms of the electoral uh, calculations right. uh, in the electoral mm-hmm. college. And out of curiosity, the Trump White House are they, you know. Are they eager to face a female candidate? Are they concerned about the ability of somebody like Elizabeth Warren to connect with progressive or uh, progressive voters or voters who feel as though uh, elites have uh, abandoned them in some way? Yeah, they are because you will hear the president every now and again, particularly at his rallies, raise Elizabeth Warren's name in the context of the nickname that he's given her. And he'll talk about how he went after her a little bit too early, you know, last year or maybe it was the year before when he was seemingly every day just sort of poking her with this with this nickname. Um, but I, I do believe the White House and the president is probably more uh, concerned about somebody like Joe Biden. And this morning, the president has sent a number of tweets about Mike Bloomberg. So I think they're a little bit more concerned about those two candidates than they are about Elizabeth Warren at this point. OK. Uh, I want to move now to some uh, domestic uh, developments in the last few minutes of the show. Uh, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, – Efforts by law enforcement officials to crack down on, on threats. Uh, Attorney General uh, William Barr gave an update this week on investigation of the shooting at a naval air station in Pensacola, Florida earlier this month. The gunman was a member of the Royal Saudi Air Force training at the base. He killed three U.S. sailors. Barr called the shooting an act of terrorism. During the course of the investigation, we learned that the shooter posted a message on September 11th of this year stating the countdown has begun. During the Thanksgiving weekend, he then visited the 9-11 memorial in New York City. He also posted other anti-American, anti-Israeli, and jihadi messages on social media, including two hours before his attack. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Kimberly Atkins, uh, law enforcement officials have uh, arrest, announced indictments against members of a group called calling themselves the base, which were uh, white supremacists that they suggested were plotting or thinking about uh, uh, violent acts against uh, against uh, blacks and other people of color, if I'm not mistaken. And, and the, the governor of Virginia has, uh, in anticipation of this weekend, a protest scheduled by uh, white supremacists has declared a state of emergency. Uh, in the state's capital there, as I understand it, uh, because of concerns about what may break out. What do we know about those – either of those instances in terms of uh, the ability of authorities to address concerns about that in ways that might uh, be more constructive than what played out, say, for example, in Charlottesville a couple of years ago? Well, that's the concern, right? After uh, Charlottesville and after, according to FBI data, there has been an increase uh, in hate-related uh, violence uh, and hate-related activities in recent years. Uh, I think what you're seeing are, are Virginia officials, to the best of their ability, trying to get ahead of this. And there has been a lot of criticism about uh, the FBI's failure to address that threat in particular. There had been a lot of folks 
focus on anti-terror uh, from foreign threats, but not as much about domestic uh, terror threats. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it appears, at least in this case, if this is the case, if these given these arrests, perhaps that this is good news that uh, law enforcement got ahead and made these arrests before something uh, awful could happen this weekend. Uh, but that's that's something that federal and state authorities are continuing uh, to try to address and clearly a problem that has is far from being eradicated. We're hearing there the voice of Kimberly Atkins. She's a senior news correspondent at WBUR. Kimberly, thank you for sharing your reporting and analysis with us this week. Thanks for having me. And we've also been hearing from Darlene Superville. She covers the White House for the Associated Press. We so much appreciate your time, Darlene. You're welcome. And thanks, too, to our own On Point News analyst, Jack Beatty. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thank you, David. You can continue the conversation and get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. You can always follow us on the Twitters, find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. And now I'd like to take a brief moment to a word about Karen Schiffman. She's our executive producer. She's been with the show since its inception in 2001 and has been a pillar of its success and relevance to listeners throughout the country ever since. I want to thank her for welcoming this hosting newbie back in 2018. A wonderful news junkie. We appreciate all you've done. I'm David Folkenflick. This is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the Balance Scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the Balance Scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the Balanced Scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short-term, mid-term, long-term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions – and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, it, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.